This week on the Golf Digest podcast, we're talking to Adam Ralston, who has recently completed a journey that saw him play golf across Mongolia. It was 1,200 miles. It took him 82 days and 20,000-plus strokes. It's an amazing story, all coming up next on the Golf Digest podcast. Welcome to the Golf Digest Podcast. This is Sam Wyman. Like I said, my guest today is Adam Ralston, who is uh, has lived in Hong Kong for most of his life. He's a, a native of North, Northern Ireland, and he and his friend Ron Rutland had the uh, crazy idea of basically playing golf across Mongolia, uh, 1,200 miles. The journey took them 82 days. They always played the ball as it lies, and then when they lost the ball, they um, they played a provisional and and played it by the rules of golf. It's, it, it took them across all kinds of terrain, mountains, valleys, streams. They met a dog along the way. Um, it's it's a remarkable journey. You know, we talk a lot about on this podcast about um, you know major championships and and you know golfers at the height of the game. And when you hear his story, the case can be made this might be the most impressive golfing feat of the year. So a really interesting discussion, and we're going to go to that now. All right, I want to thank uh, Adam Ralston for joining us from Hong Kong. This might be our first uh, Asian-based uh, guest. So, Adam, thank you for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, an amazing um, story and an amazing feat what you did um, this past summer. You played golf essentially all across uh, 1,200 miles in Mongolia. So I'll start with a really basic question is what was the genesis of the idea? Well, uh, I, it was the the idea came. I was in Kenya playing two test matches uh, for Hong Kong rugby test matches against Kenya, and I, I was coming to the end of my contract. I was thinking about what I want to do, and I've always wanted to do an adventure. Um, just so happened, my friend Ron Rutland was there in in Kenya at the time, and he had just finished cycling through every single country of Africa. Uh, continental Africa and I had a coffee with him he told his story to uh, the Hong Kong national team and I said to him you know like I would like to just do I want to do an adventure and I want to do something different and I'm I'm a reasonably good golfer you know is there anything potentially I could do with that and uh, well what about the longest hole and then well you know what about looking at a country that pretty much looks like a golf course. What about Mongolia? It's the land of no fences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the ball started rolling. And six months later, we were on the first tee. Well, the only yeah. tee, uh, you know, uh, up up in the most westerly point of Mongolia. Yeah, that, that begs the question of like, how did you pick the actual course, meaning um, where you would start and where you would finish? And I'm also curious, like how much of uh, how much, how aware were you of the route you'd be taking, like what you'd be coming across along the way? Yeah. So we, we chose, we, we actually found out our end spot before our start Mm -hmm. point. So we wanted to finish on the, the 18th hole of Mongolia's only championship golf course. And it was Mount (laughs) Bucket golf course, golf club in Ulaanbaatar. And then we worked back to find the furthest point we could possibly go in Mongolia which just so happened to be on the border of North Russia, West Kazakhstan, and to the South China. So it's these four countries that sort of merge together. 
and we teed up on the base camp of Mongolia's highest mountain uh, in Tavenbok National Park. So you, if you can imagine a sort of glacier that's spilling out on the right, and we're on the sort of top of this precipice teeing up. Amazing. So uh, yeah. go, going back to your uh, question about the route, uh, we had a guy uh, called Bat in Mongolia. He's been doing these um, tours for the last 30 years. He knows the country like the back of his hand. So our biggest factor was grass length, um, you know, going through cities and towns. And also, you know, was, was this country playable? Right. You know, golf-wise. <laughs> so so we, we plotted a very meticulous route all the way from Tavenbok National Park through the Gobi Desert, uh, over the Hungai Mountains and across the, the Mongolian steppe to Ulaanbaatar. And we sat down probably for about six to seven hours plotting every single, you know, minute detail on Google Maps, working out whether, you know, are we ever, are we going to turn a corner and find wayside grass and not be able to go forward, which right. is probably our biggest concern. Well, that begs another question is, is 20,000 strokes it took you to complete yeah. this journey. Um, how much did you actually move your ball um, by hand, if ever? I didn't. It, you, I you played didn't. every single every single shot and every every single inch of the country was played within the the rules of the game and the morals of the game. Amazing. So every single shot was played to to the golf rules. So that so that that leads to the next question: was what what type of conditions were the most difficult to navigate? <laughs> I guess yeah, because I can imagine there were a bunch of really tough ones. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the first week I probably said. I probably had 50 interviews about this same same topic, and it's it's the first week. It's it's the the combination of being naive about the practicalities of actually playing golf, and uh, Ron, my caddy, was pulling a cart, and how we balanced um, everything on the cart. So, uh, I mean, the center of gravity. We started off the cart was very top heavy, and it it reacted with the the spokes on the wheels so we're having we're damaging the wheels quite badly in the first week it was miserable conditions it was snowing sleeting raining for the first four days the grass was up around my shins and i was hitting a seven iron um and i ended up losing you know 10 balls in the first two days and we just had to work out that i couldn't hit full shots we just had to chip it 40 yards in front or maybe 20 yards in front in order to keep keep the you know you know keep the ball in play and, right. and keep it so we, we could find it every time and even even the first tee shot i played we were on the top of this hill and we were hitting down this valley and i i hit a driver and right down the middle and it just it just disappeared and right. i had to hit a provisional and our morale for the first two days was so low the cart was being dragged through marshlands, and it was it was pretty awful. But yeah. we got through it, uh, and you know we we ended up uh, realizing our capabilities right. were limited in some terrains. So I forgot to mention you are a scratch player, so you have a background in the game. So what was your golf? What like what's your golf story? When, when did you start playing? Uh, how how competitive were you, or are you? I should say. As a player, so I, I, 
I would probably say now that I'm a, I would be like a three or a four handicap. And mm-hmm. uh, there was a period of time, I've, I've always grown up with rugby as being my main sport all the way through school. And I picked up golf because my geography teacher, uh, when I was about 16, was a member of Hong, the Royal Hong Kong Golf Club in Hong Kong. And he put together like a little club on a Thursday to take guys to the golf club. And I, I was about 16, 15, 16. And did you always grow up? Did you grow up in Hong Kong or when did you move there? Yeah, so I, I was actually born in Hong Kong, but I moved back to Northern Ireland uh, when I was about nine mm-hmm. and then moved back to Hong Kong when I was 15. And so, yeah, I, I picked up golf quite late, 15, 16 year old. Uh, and yeah, I, I just took, I just took to it quite well. I played a lot of tennis. I think, uh, you know, your transfer of weight from your mm-hmm. back foot to your front foot is, is quite similar to golf like tennis. So I think I took the, the mechanics are quite similar. Right. And just none of my family really play my brothers hack about, but <laughs> I just, I, I don't know how I, I got to the point where I am now. Right. It's, uh, it's just maybe my own self-interest in the game. No one really brought me into it. I, I just developed this addiction, right? Really, out of nowhere. I so the, and then I would imagine so like you hear these stories of guys who've played. Uh, I, I've never heard anything like yours, but you certainly people have played a lot of golf in a short period of time. And first of all, I don't know what what you would. What, what you did would characterize as golf. You were hitting golf shots, but they either get uh, more obsessed with golf as a result of it, or they're so sick of golf because like I don't want to look at a golf club after a certain point. So, w- what was the balance for you over the course of this journey? Um, I, I got up every day motivated to play golf. Mm-hmm. Like this was, we had a we had a certain goal that we needed to finish this in eighty days because our visa was only ninety days. So we had a we had a target that we had to hit, which was between 25 kilometers a day, which is like 14 miles, right. I think, uh, every day, 25 kilometers to 35 kilometers every day. And Ron had his jobs, I had mine. And honestly, like, I would say the last three weeks, I was in pain because my back was in bits. I'd, I have to carry a, about a 10 to 12 kilo backpack while playing golf. Right. Um, so you put it down and swing, and, put it down and swing. Is that basically what you do? No, 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 no. I would have it on my back. The oh whole my time. gosh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I played with a backpack and Ron dragged a cart, which is about 120 kilos. But saying that, um, you, you adapt, the body adapts to what you have to do mm-hmm. daily. Like after four or five days, I just, you just get mind, mind the pun. You get into the swing of things. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you really, you, you swing with a golf club, uh, sorry, uh, with a backpack on your back and you learn to hit the eight iron. Like I was hitting an eight iron a lot and then I'd revert to a, you know, a pitching wedge and I have a seven iron. Right. Uh, and we, we actually had a driver that came the whole way as well as a putter. Right. So the putter never got touched until we got to the green 80 <laughs> days later and the driver was only used twice. Right. A provisional and a normal shot. <laughs> but honestly, like the body adapts and your back, you don't notice that you have weight on your back. It just becomes sure. like this thing on your back. It's it does you you learn to swing with it, you learn to hit 60-yard punches or, you know, 160-yard uh, cuts or draws and you, you, you almost become one with the club and you go 
if you're playing normal golf, you go up and down your clubs. You know, you hit your driver, then you go to your wedge, you hit your seven, you hit your four, you do that. But when you hit an eight iron 300 times a day, and then you hit that for 10 days straight, that eight iron becomes your only weapon and you just become so used to it. Sure. And then when someone hands you a four iron, it almost feels like it's about three meters long. Right. If you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I could totally imagine. Um, how much of an adjustment was it uh, once you were through to going back to playing golf without weight on your back? It's it's, it's tricky. It is tricky. Um, I was in South Africa two weeks ago, and Taylor May sent me. I went and played Pearl Valley, one of the premier courses in South Africa, and I shot like an eighty-three. Wow. It's just yeah. I looked down at a five iron, and it's. It's basically impossible to hit because I've been swinging like an eight or a pitching wedge or these clubs. Just my driver was all over the place. I couldn't, I couldn't get any rhythm with any of the wedges or anything like that. So it's, it's really tough. It's like I would, I would imagine it's like a squash. It's like playing squash and then going to play tennis. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it's a very, it's, it's as much as it's golf. Like it's a, it's a different sport almost. It was right. very, it's a very. I mean, if you can call it a sport. Yeah, of course. What I yeah, yeah. So if I, there are, like, improvements made to your golf game as a result of this trip, maybe you're not seeing them yet. Maybe over time, just from the strength. No, no, no. Yeah. If, if you're asking about improvements to my game, it's totally not the case. Yeah. No improvements. But you never know. Um, I mean, maybe the just the, you know, you've, you've I got them just physically stronger as a result of, of hitting that many balls. Maybe there's something to be said for that. Uh, I disagree. I'm physically weaker because I have to walk so far every day. So I, I lost about six kilos. Um, I'm only, I'm only 75 kilos. So 170 pounds. Uh, I, when I started and I'm about 155 wow. pounds. Yeah. So like you're up. Okay. Where, where I developed muscles, like my core strength, because I'm swinging with a backpack on, that got stronger, right. but my shoulders got weaker. My, uh, like my my backside sort of like a an in un you know like a deflated balloon. Because when you walk, you're walking on your quads the whole time. So my quads got stronger, right. but my, my backside got really really strangely weak. Yeah, and that's where some of your power comes from when you swing or you know when you're you're doing compound workouts like squats and stuff like that. So I, I, I lost weight in specific, you know, areas. That's really interesting because it's kind of like overuse of one area. And it's kind of like why they they um, they preach not um, sort of specializing on certain muscles sometimes because it, suddenly you're neglecting other muscles. Well, totally. It's, yeah. it's like uh, Nadal having his, you know, big left arm in tennis yeah. and his little w wimpy right one. Right. You know, it's you're the body the – body, you know, uh, it, it doesn't need muscle in areas if it's, if it's not using them. Yeah. So when you don't use muscles, they go. And then when you use muscles, uh, you know, in another place, they, they grow. So yeah, it's the body's yeah. a very, uh, adaptable piece of kit. I know you said that the purpose of the trip was you wanted to kind of, kind of have an adventure, but was there a larger yeah. sort of larger goal or a larger point you wanted to make? Uh, by taking the trip, I mean we we have the charity side of things with with Laureus Sports for Good Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, they were amazing with uh, you know our our media access and and you know they 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 do awesome stuff around the world. They they you know get 
kids out of terrible situations and use sport for good. And it's a re- it's a really cool charity and it's perfect for what we were doing. But to also contradict that, we, we this is this was an adventure for an adventure's sake. Mm-hmm. The charity was as as much as the charity was amazing. I don't want to get mixed up. This this was very much. Me and Ron had a goal. We set out and uh, we set out to complete it, and we did. Um, I would say this adventure fulfilled me in a way that rugby probably didn't. Uh, I had a four, I had a three and a half year contract with Hong Kong rugby, um, and we we were playing in the sort of second tier of world rugby, so against the likes of Russia and and teams like that. And I feel that I didn't. I was I was injured quite a lot, and I didn't get what I wanted out of my career. And I wanted to push myself and almost create something that I could go out and do and really be proud of. And I think I sort of mixed golf and rugby, the sort of determination and physical side of what I did for three years, and then to the you know the skill and mm-hmm. sort of that sort of side with golf. And I almost maybe subconsciously married both of them together and came up with something like this. And this was well and truly one of the hardest things I've ever done mentally and physically. I mean, every day we had to get up and play and walk and get through 30 kilometers to, you know, 25 to 30 kilometers every day for 80 days. I think we had three days off. And it was, it was hard work. Can you, um, you know, can you point to the best shot you hit? And by that, I mean like a difficult circumstance that you've managed to thread a ball through or something like that. Big time. Um, there we, we, um, finished in the Hungai mountains, uh, probably about four or 500 kilometers. And then we had 750 kilometers of desert to cross Northern Gobi desert. And the variety of shots changed quite dramatically. So you're, you go from chipping around, you know, over rivers and streams and, you know, hitting various full shots here and there. And then you go into the desert where you're, you know, I'm strapped into my backpack and I'm hitting full seven irons, you know, all day. And, and then we got into the Hungai mountains, which was very much like a wooded, uh, Alpine forest area with rivers and streams. And there was one moment where we got to the top of this, uh, valley and below us was, these, this big river and alpine forests to the right. But to get down this steep slope, we had to meander down a path that meandered back on itself about eight times. So I was chipping the ball down this very steep gravel path, but I would have to chip it back on myself and then back on myself again. But I got to the elbow of the path and I chipped it into an area where it was a bit grassy. And I probably was about 150 meters up uh, looking down onto a bridge beneath me. And with one shot, I took out, uh, probably about 200 shots down this, down this <laughs> valley, uh, slope. So I took off the whole corner and landed it right on a bridge, uh, where it sat. Amazing. And I just jogged, jogged down. It probably took me 15 minutes to jog down to go find it. And the ball was just sat nicely on this bridge. But saying this, uh, Andrew King, who, who is the the filmmaker that came out with us? Actually, deleted that footage <laughs> on his camera. I was so livid. Like it's it's like it goes down as the greatest shot in golf's history. Right. Like 
no one's hit a better shot in history of history of the game, but no one will know. So well, it's annoying that it's uh, it's pretty much pretty much the only piece of footage we don't have um, that uh, was memorable and, and worth keeping. So, well, maybe, maybe its legend will grow because it doesn't. It's not caught on film. You know, it can become an even greater shot over time. Yeah, I mean, there is another shot where uh, my ball's in this sort of crevice, and I've. It, this this will actually go in the documentary where I'm actually I'm hitting a ball up a hill. Uh, you know the the incline is so high that I had to cut off another corner, but to go up a hill and uh, the ball gets wedged in a crevice and I go up to the ball and Ron says I think it's unplayable and I basically call Spieth, uh, you know, some sort of uh, swear word because obviously he. <laughs> He took the unplayable in the open, and I took the, you know, I'm not going to take an unplayable in Mongolia. And I hit this ball, and it ricochets off a rock straight into my kneecap. Oh. And uh, oh. I sort of tumble down the hill, sort of crying with pain. So, uh, yeah, that's another memorable shot, but in a, in all, all for, you know, in a different way. So your, um, your shot total was uh, 20,000, what was it, 20,000? And, and 93. 93 and your par was 14,000. So how did you come up with the par for this course? Uh, so we were fairly naive about what the par was going to be. Uh, thinking we, we based the par on average shot distance. Sure. So we made the shot distance roughly, you know, 120 yards. I can't remember what it actually was. Uh, I was thinking, I'm because cause we actually went to Mongolia and we did a recce trip about a month before we went out to do the, the actual thing. So me and Ron, I, we, we played the last 10 kilometers into the golf club. So we had a, a vague idea what the terrain was going to be and how far um, we were going to be hitting shots and sure. how, how many balls we were going to lose per day. So we worked it off that. And oh, were we wrong? <laughs> <laughs> um, what? What? I know that you had mentioned in the story that, that uh, Brian Wacker wrote for for GolfDigest.com about sort of your interactions with the local people and their sort of amusement because they weren't even familiar with with what golf was like. So, talk to me a little bit about those interactions and and sort of what you came away f- from that with. Yeah. So. Uh, the, we started at the furthest point of Mongolia. So we're really in the boondocks. We're miles away from nowhere. We had to actually, we had to take a camel ride to the, to the tee off point. So this was, it's, you couldn't even get cars to the point where we were going. And so the locals would see Ron pulling the cart and just be like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. You know, this is ridiculous. Like some white guy pulling (laughs) this, two-wheeled object across marsh and you know river valleys and all this and then they then they see this guy hitting this white pebble with a stick and they're all they're more interested in ron uh in the beginning they thought because they're obsessed with mechanics and also you know sort of they're they're very much um yeah they, they they liked what what the cart was they wanted to have a go by you know strapping themselves in and pulling it but it was it, it was weird it was it was like we were the ambassadors for the game in a way like we were taking the game to a new place in the world and there was quite a bit of responsibility these mongolians when they saw me hitting balls they just wanted to have a go and so i dropped down a few balls 
And most, most of the time, these guys knew what they were doing. They would look at me hitting a ball, and then they would just immediately want to have a go, right hand over left, and a lot of the time they would strike it. It was, it was very surreal seeing, seeing these guys just step up and hit a golf ball. Amazing. And in Western culture, the kids would be, you know, you know, have a go, kids, have a go. Let right. you know, and dad would just be there watching, and and the kids would be having a good time. The dads would be pushing the kids away to have a, you know, have a go first. <laughs> it was quite, it was quite weird. But uh, yeah, these these guys were pretty coordinated. Yeah. The Mongolian culture, they do a lot on horseback. It's a very uh, horsey culture. Right. I mean, they they shoot arrows off off horses at full full pelt they um they play a lot of volleyball and 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 they wrestle they're all big strong men right uh, and fairly coordinated so we're talking about a pretty uh simple existence the, i mean there's no you tell me these people are not familiar with golf by seeing on the internet or something like that because yeah, it sounds I, like I there's not a lot of internet there well the further we would go east it would be closer to the capital and bigger towns. And they, they would have seen golf, maybe a picture here and there. And some would have gone, and some people may have said golf in, in English. Oh, wow. But certainly, certainly wouldn't have had a go yeah. ever. Um, but yeah, it's, it, was, it, was, it was pretty cool. So the, like you said, you, you plotted the course where you would finish at the one golf course in Mongolia. So yes. um, talk me through uh, that day um you know getting to the course and then then when you actually kind of hole out like kind of that whole experience yeah um well i'll go back another day because my friends and our friends and family uh came to mongolia to see us finish and we met them in a specially built camp about 15 kilometers outside the golf course and everyone was uh you know tents and there was oh. a big communal tent and everyone was waiting for me and Ron to arrive, my girlfriend, friends and family. And uh, everyone was a, you know, they, if they wanted to play, they, they could come and play adventure golf with us uh, on the lead up to the final putt. So they could, they could play in the wilderness with us on that final day. And we, we got to the golf club, uh, like I say, 15 kilometers away. Uh, and we, we hit up onto the fairway. The golf club had set up all these uh, billboards all around the 18th. It was really cool. It was, it was very surreal. All the cameras were there and a lot of the members and just people that were interested to see us finish. Because in Mongolia, this story was it, it, it was fairly widespread. And so all these cameras around the green were set up, ready for me and Ron to march up and hopefully two-putt. Yeah. And so I had this – I had this – you know, the pressure of on these, you know, I just wanted to hit the ball into the heart of the green and two putt. Right. And that's what I wanted to do. So for 12 weeks, I'd been thinking about this <laughs> one moment. And we had carried this, you know, tailor-made putter that was strapped to the back of this uh, golf cart that Ron brought 2,011 kilometers or whatever, 1,200 and something miles across, you know, 80 days. And I was left to hopefully two putt with this with this putter and i i don't know whether you've seen pictures of the the seven iron i had yeah i think it was completely mangled yeah rusted there was no grooves on it but i was about 120 yards out and i just punched it into the 
the heart of the green. We, me and Ron were wearing tra- traditional Mongolian outfits because we started as golfers and we ended as traditional Mongolian <laughs> nomads across our journey. So it was, it was quite a poignant moment and we felt it was quite the, the right thing to do. And so Ron ripped off the putter and announced that this putter had been dragged across 2011 kilometers of Mongolia and I was left to nervously, hopefully, two putt or potentially one putt. But uh, in fact, I, I ran my first putt past by seven or eight feet. Yeah. On the on you know, it was up. You know, I was going back down the slope, <laughs> left to right, slippery putt, and it was it was it was really cool because I had given my brother my phone. And he was Instagram storying the whole way within the in the lead up to that final putt, and I think I had seven or eight hundred people watching on Instagram story live. So you know they were able to see my my approach shot, me and Ron walking up to the green, and then that's that first putt. My brother commentating and saying like, you know, in Happy Gilmore style, like, <laughs> you know, just tap it in, send him home ball, you know, all this sort of stuff. With a crowd on my on my, you know, behind me and the the sun setting, and in most circumstances, I'm a terrible putter for a, a good golfer. I I'm a I I can tee to green. I can I can roll with the best of them, but in terms of putting, I'm awful. And I rolled this putt in from eight foot and <laughs> fist pumped it all the way, and it was a really really fun way to finish such a long journey. And it was a, it was just a great full stop on our, yeah. on our adventure. It was, it was a really cool moment, top three moment of, of my life. Amazing. I think it was, it was just the, the build up, and then to finish it off in style was, was uh, fantastic. Right. Beats a kind of tap in, like an inconsequential tap in. So. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's conse- It is consequential, even though it's like yeah. two, twenty thousand and ninety four strokes. <laughs> right. There's, there's an asterisk above it, and he three putted. Yeah. So it was a very neat thing to do. How cool. Well, that is amazing. So tell me again, you were mentioning before we went on the air that, that the hope is to have a documentary. Oh, you mean you, it was filmed, so it's just piecing that together. So tell me what state that is in right now. So uh, we've secured funding for post-production, and the, the documentary slash film is going to be produced over the next two to three months. Uh, it's it's going to blow people's minds. <laughs> I mean, nothing like this has really done, been done in the golf industry. Um, it's it's really exciting stuff. Uh, the the amount of stuff that we've been through, like I've I've mentioned in the podcast, from snow and sleet to forty degree days through the mountains, through over rivers and streams, hitting through towns and. And all the yeah. way through until uh, you know a, a golf club in Ulaanbaatar, and we we I, I don't know whether you know we had a dog that joined us. Yeah, uh, I read about that as well. Days, two days into our adventure, and his story almost probably overshadowed our golfing story. I mean, this this dog is, it, you know, he turned up as this skinny wolf and followed us for sixty to seventy kilometers. So. 40, 40 something miles he, he just walked behind us crying and and he became this strong defender of our cart and a big asset to us uh, as protection and also 
for me as a, uh, I wasn't a dog person in the beginning and, and now I have this, you know, this epic story and relationship I had with this, this old dog. And, and so even though that putt went in on 18 and it put an awesome, it put a full stop to our journey, we had to find UB, which is Ulaanbaatar short, uh, UB being the dog's mm-hmm. name. We had, we had to find this dog, a, a home and, mm-hmm. And so we had these homes lined up and it, they, they fell through because they weren't appropriate. This dog is a, a wild dog in the right. wet, most westerly point of this wild country. And he, he turns up to this city to people wanting to give him a home and give him a city life. And it, we, we just thought it was, it was completely wrong. So we canceled those plans. We, we took him to the national park with my family and friends and we, in hope to find this dog a beautiful home, and it was very, uh, it was it was so lucky. Uh, I took the dog down with the cameraman Andrew King to this little settlement. Uh, it, it was a it was this little six year old man. He he had a little uh, picketed off fence with a bit of land right out in this beautiful national park. And I sat down with him and showed him all the photos of the dog, his journey through Mongolia mm-hmm. and how far he had come and how famous he is and how much he means to me and Ron and Andrew King, the cameraman, and all the other people that followed our story and how important he was for us to find him a fantastic home. And the guy was completely blown away by his story. And he said, you know, it would be a total honor for us to take oh. the, take the dog on board and he's part of our family, and it's a you know, gift, gift from God that you guys have chosen us to take on such a you know beautiful animal. And so the next day, we all took the dog down, and it was such an emotional farewell. And the guy was already building him a house in his in his backyard, and it was it was it was a really that was almost a bigger ending for me because of the pressures that I was under, hoping to find this dog a home, and it was it was thank god we were able to find him one how cool how cool that is yeah, yeah that's cool. that's a great you know it, it, you, you've talked about this for half an hour and it does really make me want to to, to see it as well so um i'm i'm truly impressed it's an amazing story um well listen adam i want to thank you because uh this is a really cool we have a story about it on golfdigest.com but you know i wanted to kind of hear a little bit more from you as well so this is a really interesting discussion and i I wish you uh, I wish you luck with the documentary because I think it's the type of thing people would really uh, grab hold to. Well, thanks a lot. It's I mean the story doesn't just hopefully it doesn't just appeal to golfers. It's very much an adventures adventure documentary, but you know a lot of it obviously is golf orientated. No, I, so, I, I agree. Thanks a lot for me. My my pleasure. Take care. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye bye. Thanks again to Adam Ralston uh, for joining us on this week's Golf Tide Jess podcast. I would encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to read Brian Wacker's story with pictures uh, on our site as well. It's a pretty amazing, amazing story with some really remarkable visuals. And uh, I look forward to hearing the documentary, or seeing the documentary, I should say, because it sounds like it's going to be amazing. So thanks again. Check back next week to see who our guests will be.